edition of the Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Robert. Before we get started with this week's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners, and if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got Rachel Chong. Rachel is double world para badminton champion double double european badminton champion and world number one so welcome on to the show rachel thank you very much for having me so before we delve into today's episode rachel obviously i've had the privilege of meeting you beforehand and i can't think off the top of my head i think it's about over a year ago now but for the listeners can you divulge how you got into badminton and kind of how it's progressed from there uh, yeah, I, I started playing badminton. Um, it was 2000, the year 2000, and um, I was six years old at the time. Um, my sister, she'd just, well, sorry, my, my father, he was already playing badminton. He was playing at like a social level. Um, and my sister, she just started going to a local club where she was getting coaching. And um, from the encouragement of both of them and my mum as well, I was encouraged to go along with her one Saturday morning, um, and it was it was only in the school that was around the corner from my house, so it was nice and nice and close. So I walked down one Saturday, and then like the coach, he um, just kind of like gave me a junior racket, blew up a balloon for me, it was just like hit it up and down, have some fun, and I loved it from the word go. Um, so I've just been playing nonstop since then, really, and I'm now 24, so that's a long time, like, and um. Yeah, it's it's got better and better every year. To be honest, it was it was quite slow at the start. Um, with my disability being short stature, I was always significantly below average on um on the progression of height through um all years, even through puberty as well. I was I was always below average. I I had a growth spurt myself, but it wasn't as significant as other children. So it was always quite difficult to try and keep up with them, um, with the badminton, you know, whereas they could take three strides to a shuttle on one side of the court, it would take me about five or six strides. So it was, I, I always felt that I had to work, you know, just that little bit harder, but through the motivation of my coach and of my family, I, I was encouraged to keep at it. And yeah, um, because of that, I was I was selected for junior county, which I don't think very many disabled people can actually say to be playing junior county amongst able-bodied people. So I'm very quite I'm quite proud of that. Um, and it was at one of the county training sessions. One of the coaches there said that he'd heard about a para badminton event para badminton tournament and I was encouraged to go along because they said oh the dwarf class or the short stature class was included within that and it just completely took off from there um yeah I, I started competing internationally um within the second year of playing para badminton I was already at my first Europeans um and then um, in 2013, I had my first world championships, and um, that was quite successful. I had I got two world titles there in um, SS6, which is short stature um, event, um, and that was in women's singles and mixed doubles. 
and then I've, as as you mentioned before, um, a couple of Europeans as well um, on top of the first one, and I've been successful at those ones too. So double double world champ uh, European champion at them. So again in SS six women's singles and mixed doubles, and more recently I was in my third world championships where I became double triple world champion, and that was in SS six women's singles, women's doubles and mixed. So quite an accomplishment so far. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um it's it's been really good and I'm 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 blessed to have had the opportunities that I have done in my power badminton. Um thank you to the people around me and things like that. So yeah, I've I've been very very blessed with what opportunities I've been presented with. And in terms of the court dimensions now, Rachel, for people that don't know a lot about badminton is there any differences between, say, the able-bodied able side of the game, sorry, as opposed to the disabled? So, within Parabamton, we've got six disability classifications. Um, two of them for wheelchair, three of them for standing. So, um, within those three, it would be like um, lower leg amputation, upper leg amputation, the severity of cerebral palsy, and then one of them is upper arm amputa- uh, upper body amputation or impairment. Um, and then finally, the SS6 class. Um, within SS6, the, the reason why the SS6 class is so popular and so entertaining, it, it is deemed as one of the most entertaining classes to watch. Um, it is because all of the core dimensions and net height it's all exactly the same as it would be for able-bodied. So seeing people, you know, that are no more than four foot six tall, really run around on a full-size badminton court with a full-size net and everything's all the same as it would be for an able-bodied person. That's one of the pulling points and why it's so entertaining. Um, With the wheelchair classes for singles, um, they play it on half-court and always... um, or doubles the four court is always out and then there are also some court differences for the standing classes as well depending on the, the severity of the disability okay so in terms of the probably the comparison between the two your class is probably the most similar to what yeah. people would be I'm trying to be not not too PC now. Uh, too too uh, similar to what an able-bodied person would either have seen or have played. Yeah, that's correct. Um, as I said, that's that is one of the reasons why it's most entertaining. Um, when you especially watch the men's events in SS six, um, you'll see you know these men with with dwarfism because they're struggling so much to cover the vast space of the court they dive quite a lot so again that is very very entertaining as well even myself as a player i i do enjoy watching them dive around a little bit i'm not gonna lie (laughs) (laughs) so rachel in terms of like the mindset of you first starting out in badminton what were some of the obviously you you talked about the actual physicality of coming up against your able-bodied peers but from a men- mental perspective now, how was that for you to have, actually over, have to overcome? 
I, I did struggle a little bit, um, you know, because I, I happen to have some quite tall friends as well, even for that age. Um, and seeing, seeing them be so powerful, it, it did knock me a little bit. And I was thinking, you know, am I going to be good enough to keep up with them going forwards and such like that? Um, and I've, I've even, I even had the conversation with my parents at the time about how it may be different if I was tall and I didn't have a disability. Um, but especially when the power badminton opportunity started to come out, it was, you know, my parents very, very kindly pointed out to me that I wouldn't get those opportunities if I was tall. Like, I, I can't say that none of my peers at the time when I was a junior growing up and training with them and playing, learning how to play badminton with them, none of them are world champions. <laughs> so I think it definitely thanks to my, my parents and my coach, you know, giving me that encouragement to keep going, keep training just as hard as the other kids. I, I think that has helped me be a better badminton player anyway because I, I didn't learn about para badminton until quite old in comparison to the other people. Um, I was, I think, 12 or 13. So I was always playing against able-bodied people, and I think that's what has made me a better badminton player because I was always playing with them and learning how to play badminton like an able-bodied person. So in terms of, like, tactically, you you would say you are more instinctively playing as if you were able-bodied, as you would say? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Like, I I do even sometimes notice it when I play at tournaments against short stature people, people with dwarfism, I say, oh, that shot would have been if I were to play against someone who were taller. It's just in my subconscious that is the shot that I should play. And then and then I look back at it and I think I should have played a different shot there to exploit a different part of the court, perhaps, that would be more or strategically smarter to do against the opponent that I had. So do, do you find at times that you're putting yourself under more pressure than you need to then? Yes, sometimes I do. Um, like, for example, say if I were to clear the shuttle to the back of the court, I might give it more height than necessary as if it were a taller person who would need that extra height on it for me to clear it over them. Whereas for a shorter person, I wouldn't need to put so much height on it. And if I give them more height, I give them more time. So, yeah, I, I would agree that sometimes I do put myself under a bit more pressure because of my shot choices are more accustomed to playing able-bodied people. And do you think over time that is, on reflection, those decisions have become less? Or do you think it's still the same or indifferent? I think... I think now that I'm focusing a lot more on my parabombs and when when I was a junior it was I was always playing against able bodied people. Um I didn't really need to think like that, but now I'm aware of what I'm doing. I know that in competition I I will play I need to play particular shots. I am practicing them a lot more and I am more conscious of it. So when I do go to tournaments I I would like to think that they're not happening. Those those situations are not happening as frequently as what they were. And this is something you raised when you had your talk 
well, gosh, I want to say it's a year ago, it could be longer, of obviously having to balance your school education and having to travel, I think at the time it was at least all over Europe, if not yeah. more widely. Can you kind of explain how you kind of balance the two? When I was growing up, I found it very difficult. Um, to me, badminton was the priority. School was definitely not. Um, I wouldn't say I struggled in school, but because of my relaxed approach to education while I was being an international athlete, um, I, I'd probably say I could have done better in school. But, uh, I mean, like, my parents have always seen education as the most important thing when I was growing up you know if I did something wrong or I wasn't doing well in school it wasn't a case of I'm taking your mobile phone off you like most kids it was I'm taking your badminton rackets off you kind of thing um so yeah when I was when I was growing up as well I was like not gonna lie I did try and blag a bit more extra time off for tournaments and things like that to say that I was still recovering and such um but the the school also knew that I shouldn't be so relaxed with education they said that I needed on some days I needed to stay behind and catch up with my work which I'd done and I, I you know I've got I've got all the qualifications I've got you know quite a lot of GCSEs a few A levels as well so I'm I'm happy with where I come um through how I come through school really it could have been better but yeah, I've, I've I've got all my qualifications. I did have to put the graft in. But also coming from an Asian background, is it more difficult because obviously they have generally want their children to focus more on their education? Do you think that you did it for kind of challenging authority or would you say they were still quite supportive of the sport anyway? All of my family is very supportive of um, my sports and my achievements. Um, there was there was some pressure from my parents um, to try and go to university because I, I didn't go to university. Um, neither of my parents went, and I think they wanted me to go and have the experiences that they didn't and uh, hopefully have a better life for myself than what they did. Although I think my parents have had a, they've done very well for themselves. You know, they've, my mum, she had, um, her and her family had a family supermarket, which I was a part of for a good few years as well. So, um, they, they just wanted more for me, but to me, they've, they've had it great. Um, I'm glad I didn't go to university really, um. They, they did want me to go, but I, I feel like the experience that I've picked up along the way, and I mean, the the job that I'm in now, the position I'm in now, the people that I started with, um, some of them have degrees, I don't, and yet we're in exactly the same position. So um, I, if my parents were ever to say anything to me about not going to university, I'd just say, well, just because you get a degree, it doesn't guarantee you a job, it doesn't make you sometimes it doesn't make you any less of a person that doesn't have a degree and I, I yeah I, I would agree slightly to the Asian stereotype that they did want me to continue on with my education but I, I think I think I made a good choice in not going to be honest. But would you not argue obviously from the sporting side of things it has 
made you a better all-round person because you've got to experience different cultures, um, grown as a person anyway, because you've got to grow up fairly quickly as an adult yeah. from that essence. Yeah, I, th- I think so, yeah. I mean, as, as I mentioned before, the opportunities that I've had being an athlete, uh, you couldn't, I mean, I couldn't put a value on them. Um, last year, especially, I was all over the world for because of the opportunities that my badminton had presented me with, and I'm it, like so grateful for them. Um, yeah, it it has made me grow up very fast. I mean, my older sister, she's three years older than me, but everyone thinks I'm older just because I think I've had to grow up. I've had to grow up faster than she has. Um, so yeah, I've I've really enjoyed that, and I think I think my parents now understand why I didn't go to uni. So yeah, I I think as as a person, I've I've got experiences under my belt that no one could, some some people wouldn't even get a sniff at. So I'm really glad about that. And in terms of going looking now going forward, uh, obviously I'm assuming that all eyes are now on Tokyo. Um, with Tokyo, Parabadminton will be making its Paralympic debut. However, um, the events that I compete in will not be showcased at these Paralympics. Um, this is because at our World Championships, over the six disability classifications, we've usually got about 23 gold medal events, which it, which is a lot. Um, now, our World Championships the last ones anyway, they were over five days and 10 badminton courts. For the Paralympics, we've been told it'll be a four-day event over four badminton courts. So already, if you just do some maths there, you're slicing the events in half. So um, there was an announcement made in September of last year, and that confirmed the Parabadminton events that would be going to Tokyo 2020 Paralympics and just unfortunately none of those events that I compete in were um will will be will be going so disappointed yes but Paralympics although it would have been great and is one of the biggest sporting stages that an athlete could possibly compete on I've still got world championships every other year and European championships every other year in between. So I still look to compete at them. And who knows, 2024 could be all different. So fingers crossed, I'll I'll get to go then, maybe. Well, it's a difficult one, Rachel, because I think, I think now I'm retired, I can kind of speak my mind in terms of how they chop and change things. You're thinking... For obviously the listeners, uh, if I talk about my experiences, obviously I've had the privilege of going to two, which is it's it's probably a privilege in itself. But to kind of put it in perspective for you as well, Rachel, I don't get the argument that obviously cutting sports down when the Olympic villages are designed for the Olympics. And in all honest terms, uh, when it turns around for the Paralympics, obviously it's a week shorter in the first place, yeah. Uh, and then, then the accommodation is not completely full, so it's okay. Their argument might be down to the money, which is 
a fair enough argument, but obviously the infrastructure is already there in place. Why not give yeah. the people more opportunity? Okay, you could probably argue case in point both ways, but I think it's probably about time it's probably on legal legal footing. I'd say probably if it was ever held in this country again, you could probably, that argument is probably case in point because the yeah. popularity of it was through the roof. Yeah. I, you know what? The, I, I think it's really interesting what you've just said there because, you know, about it being a week shorter and, you know, the accommodation is never full. I think that's a very good point. I mean, the whole premise of the Paralympics, it basically means to be parallel and yet it's a week shorter and the accommodation is never full. Why is it a week shorter? Why Why is it the case? That's that's a very interesting point, that, actually. Well, it's an argument probably for somebody yeah. else in a different episode. But... <laughs> But it's that's is generally the case. I I I know for a fact that was London was definitely the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beijing four years early. Uh, it's probably more spacious. You couldn't tell, but that I would probably argue that was prob- probably true as well. Why is it a week shorter? You could argue, obviously, the amount of athletes. It's. Uh, that's why it is. Well, the last sport I did, obviously, with volleyball, I would not want it to be a week longer than it was because, what was it? To compete in almost, well, it wasn't every day, but almost every day, it's very much, well, unfortunately, I didn't play all every minute, but, but for every player, it probably would be very taxing, both physically and mentally, so maybe from that perspective. But then, four years later, they narrowed the field again, so... The the argument, okay, they might say it's tending the herd to make stuff more competitive. But if you're a home country, you might still be an outsider, but that home crowd and home advantage can be an overriding factor for the opposition. So you can get into games, obviously, if you're that much closer to your opposition it's going to make a massive difference. Yeah. But in terms of, obviously, coming back to you and having the unfortunate circumstance of not being able to go, where does that put you in terms of probably an adversity standpoint? Um, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm disappointed. I'd, it'd be nice if I could go to... Tokyo in some capacity um spectator team manager organizing anything I would love to be there um the fact that para badminton I, I would say para badminton is still quite a new sport although you've had competitions dating back quite a while the structure of it and the support from BWF which is badminton world federation or world governing body um, it's, it, the sport has improved so vastly over the past few years um, it's, for me it's amazing to see where the sport has come over the, just the 10 years that I've been competing um, so I would still love to see the sport and my teammates and 
the the other players that I know from the circuit, I would still love to see them succeed and everything, and just to see the sport in the direction where it's heading, becoming a Paralympic sport and everything, and getting that recognition that I believe the sport deserves. I I think that's just fantastic. Um, As for me, I still plan on going to world championships and European championships, still looking to compete. That, That is the highest level that I could possibly compete at, and, you know, some people don't even get to compete at that level, so I'm very fortunate, and I won't miss out on that opportunity to do so. But you you raised obviously at the beginning of the episode that your class is the most entertaining. Yes. To to obviously ask you this question now, did the men's get in at all, or is it your class didn't get in at all? No, the men's events did get in. It was um, so it was across the board for all disabilities. It was predominantly singles events that got in um over the six disability classifications all men's singles events got in and for the women's singles events um all bar six disability classifications for the women's singles got in um and then there's a couple of doubles events uh level doubles and mixed doubles um so yeah it's the annoying thing is that Every athlete other than SS6 women will either get the opportunity to go to Tokyo and compete in the event that they already compete in or change events. So, for example, say if there's a a, a women's doubles player, their event may not be in as women's doubles, but their event in women's singles would be in. So all athletes, Bob, women's singles, SS6, get the opportunity to go to the Paralympics and we don't so I'm not gonna lie I do feel a little bit hard done by by that but there's nothing we can do unfortunately I think the numbers for SS6 women singles they've only started to improve a little bit too late in my eyes and interestingly SU5 which is standing upper impairment um they have had um they're in the the women's singles event is in is going to the Paralympics and yet for the most recent world championships and for the tournament that I'm attending next week in Spain, the SS six women's singles events has more entries than the SU five women's singles events and yet they're going to the Paralympics and we're not. But as I said, I, I do I do believe our SS six numbers came in a little bit too late. But it's it's just a shame that only now the SS6 women are starting to come through and come to more tournaments. And yet the decision has already been made that we're unfortunately not going. So let me throw you out a curveball now in terms of question. Do you think you would, if if you had the opportunity, and I don't, I don't know if this would ever arise, if you could compete in the men in the men's division, if you were allowed to, would you do it? Yeah, it would. It wouldn't be the first time, to be honest. Um, in my very first World Championships, I came home with two gold, as mentioned before, which was in the SS6 Women's Singles and the SS6 Mixed. Um, but I came also came home with a bronze medal, and that was actually in men's doubles. So um, there wasn't enough women for an SS6 Women's Doubles event, so I competed amongst the men with my women's doubles partner and actually came home with a bronze I've also competed in um, the English International, which is 2014 in Loughborough. Again, not enough women for um, 
even the singles event. So I ended up competing in the men's singles event and again, got a bronze in that. So I I think that's where, when I was growing up, you know, the badminton against much taller, bigger, stronger um, peers, that has helped me be a better badminton player. And I was the only woman in SS6 category to advance that far in the men's events. So I think that's definitely uh, is what's helped me. And yeah, I'd, I, I probably would. If if SS6 women went in a competition and the opportunity to play men's, yeah, I probably would take it. And would you think you'd get the opportunity? To, do you think, well, I'll split it two ways. Do you think you'd have the opportunity to make a Paralympics in that essence? or And then also on the flip side of that, do you think the governing body would give you that opportunity to take a men's place? No, to both. Um, after 2014, uh, or I think maybe a little bit after that anyway, um, they trying to trying to get the proposal in for becoming a Paralympic sport for 2020. They made it very clear that they no longer wanted to, you know, merge classifications, merge genders. They wanted to make it as black and white as possible so they could put forward the best case for the IPC. And at the end of the day, it's all about how the public would perceive the sport. It's about, you know, getting bums on seats in the arena as well as watching it on the telly. So... I think once you start, and to be fair to to them, I think they're right. But once once you start, you know, letting people of different gender compete in a, a different like a woman to a man's event, or start saying that players can play up a classification, it's it's when it starts to get really confusing. So I can understand why they don't want it that way. So it's it can be better viewed by the public. Oh yeah, but that argument of gender is to me is that from a bit perspective of being a spectator or having competed in disability sport myself, that argument is is not is null and void because that one is if you are better than a, your male peer, I don't see a problem. You are better. That's for that's for him to be, but get that's for him to probably look himself in the mirror and to get better. Because yeah. physiologically that shouldn't happen, because mm-hmm. he should be. I won't say superior, because that's that's kind of a knockdown on you. But they 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 should be able to impose themselves physically. But if you're better than them, or better than anybody in that that category who's a male, you should in my in my argue, in my how I see it, you should probably be given the. The, the opportunity because that's not, yeah. it's it's not really I can see your argument of obviously classification and going up because that yeah. obviously makes it complicated for the viewer yeah I can understand that because I hate that question when it comes across why is such and such in that classification in another sport I don't know <laughs> don't ask me ask somebody in that sport I don't. I don't know. I I could give you my take on why I think that person is competing, but it could be the wrong answer. But in terms of that one, I would agree. But it's a difficult one because it. You could say, you could put it against the example of in able-bodied sport of the person going up an age grade, which is 
in essence, the same example yeah. a little bit because you are obviously as being the be the age group or the classification below, you are at a disadvantage. Yeah, that's true. That yeah, I think I think it can get a bit messy with classifications just in general, though, can't it? Because even when you believe an athlete is classified for one thing, you look at them five minutes later and you think, "Oh, are you sure you should even be in that class at all?" So uh, I think I think that's why it's a little bit different to going up an age group, but. Yeah, I do. I do see your point there. That's that's actually a very interesting take on it. But then they probably argue with me. Well, this is how we want to keep it black and white. <laughs> yeah. But then, like you say, all their events got got in, and then it's a difficult one because if you say yours is the most entertaining, I don't, I think it's probably. You could argue it's a PC argument to get it across the spectrum of every disability is included. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it is It is the part where everyone can either change events or keep events other than us. Um, and, you know, I work, I work closely with Women's Sport Trust and it's all about, you know, how women in sport can change, improve where we've been, where we've come from. And to be honest, I never thought the gender inequality had or would ever affect me until now, really, where I do, as I said, feel just, you know, a little bit hard done by. I've been, I think, one of the longest standing players in in the tournament. I mean, like, there are a few people that have been there before me, but a lot of them are new now. And... You know, to see my efforts ten years be knocked back, and someone like someone coming in, you know, fresh, fresh off the boat or whatever, just come in and get those opportunities that I've been striving for for ten years. That that hurts a little bit, but such is life, and you've got to look forward to what else you can do. And as I said, I mean, like world championships and everything they they would mean just as much to me really as a Paralympics. I mean how there is no one in the country who can say that they're a double triple world champion in Parabams and so I mean that to keep that going to me that's that's very, very important and I hope to continue doing that. So from uh, obviously your your answer there, I'm I am assuming it's it's been kinda it's a let a fire inside it to obviously to to some extent prove a point. And it's like, well, I'm going to obviously overcome this adversity and kind of prove you wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, like, to be fair to my coach, it was it was thanks to him um, that I've, I've now taken this perspective. Um, that, that announcement about the 2020 Parabons an event that came out actually when I was on my way out to Tokyo for a tournament and I was feeling pretty awful and you know letting my mind run away with me although although I felt like I kind of prepared myself for it um I, I was really at a loss of what to do next going forward and my coach said well 
Paralympics are one in every four years. You've got a world championships every other year and a European championships every other year in between. You've still got so much and all the other internationals as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, if if we can keep going, me and the other SS6 women, as you've said, has lit a fire in us to say, we're going to prove you wrong. We're going to make sure that we're in 2024 Paralympics. Yeah, that's that has definitely been the case. So I look forward just to keep on plugging along, doing as best I can, making as much noise about Parabandon as I possibly can, you know, to benefit both me and the sport, um, just to do what I can about it. And hopefully I will be there in 2024 when it's in Paris. Well, it's not as luxurious though, is it, really? The ring to it. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, you're dead on. Um, I went to, when I went to Tokyo, um, last last September, it was for a parabadminton tournament, and it was it was Japan's first parabadminton international tournament, and they surprised us to no end. It was so impressive what they could do with a, a parabadminton tournament. I mean, badminton's one of one of their most popular sports. Of, I mean, like other than sumo, wrestling, baseball, and table tennis. <laughs> I think it's one of their most popular sports so I mean yeah they they loved it they love their able body badminton so for them to put on uh, their first para badminton tournament which was one of the best I'd ever been to you know I, I can't wait to see what they can do with the Paralympic Games and an Olympic Games so yeah a little, little gust about that but I'm sure Paris would be fantastic anyway <laughs> Well, there's there's pluses to being so close. Obviously, the weather is not a factor because you you're competing in indoor sport. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, like I had I had family. If if I was going to go to Tokyo 2020, I had family and friends who were saying, "Oh yeah, we'd love to come out and see you." Definitely, definitely going to consider it once it gets close to the time. So I mean, like who knows? Even if I, if I do go to 2024 in Paris. Maybe more of my family and friends could come and watch me, and it'll be lighter on everyone's pockets. Well, that's de- that's de- why well, I, I probably did it. Well, in hindsight, the other way around, fam- from family perspective. But I think when you are so far away from probably, I would say, our media, it definitely makes it a little bit easier because the pressure is off. Especially, yeah. well, I was a little bit under the radar, and we kind of played it low key. So I think that helped because you're saying, "Well, this is the expectation to yeah. the outside world." Internally, it wasn't, but so that's why I, it, it still perplexes me to this day that I was so calm and and apparently being it being at the first games that was in the final, I was more relaxed than the, the heat. You're thinking, well. Mm, that shouldn't be right, <laughs> but uh, well, L- London was a little bit nerve-wracking, but I was the only team member that had gone to a game before, and people were asking me, well, what's it like? Well, you can't compare any... No, no game, even for, I think, the experienced ones have been to multiple ones. No games is the same, so you can't say, well, yeah. this is my experience... I hate being asked the question from a non-athletic perspective because it's a difficult one to answer because you obviously you can understand it from being in the athletic bubble. 
that's it that environment isn't going to change okay it's probably magnified a little bit more but mm -hmm. you can never explain to them well this is what it's like until you experience it yeah like i've my mixed doubles partner didn't my my usual mixed doubles partner didn't go with me to japan and i've said oh you've got to go this year it was amazing last time but who knows it it might not be as amazing or it might be even better than that you you just couldn't possibly say so yeah i understand that definitely well i don't miss the flights going that far but to asia <laughs> oh i know what you mean yeah i i sure will on call flights i cannot sleep on them at all i'm all right coming back to the uk it ish but i think it was because oh did i i didn't sleep, i know i didn't sleep that much the night before we flew home but that that was probably a precursor to being able to sleep. <laughs> but going out, I think it was something like four o'clock in the afternoon, the flight from London, uh, and we were told in. I'm gonna try and word it in no uncertain terms to try and. Do we have to go? To, like go to sleep or something ridiculous, like eight or nine o'clock, and I think because. Oh, that would have been, well, in my early 20s and probably still have that juvenile mindset. I'm not going to go to sleep at this time. I don't go to sleep at this time <laughs> if I'm at home. And obviously, you've got to get in a routine to be able to do that. I don't know what time I went to sleep the nights pre um, leading up to it, but I know it wasn't that early. And I think I... I've best off the top of my head maybe like two three hours sleep on the plane that's that's a good that's a good sleep for me i can i don't usually get that much i'll get like two 20 minute sleeps and that's me doesn't matter how long the flight is but it's not the most com it's not the most comfortable uh environment yeah i think i think that's my problem i can't i can't sleep in the seated position well, unless you're in some of the other sports, like, um, who do we fly out with? Cycling went out on the same flight, and obviously I think, well, they're in business class. So as you know, that's got a bed, so they probably would have got, I would imagine, a fairly good night's sleep. I think we were yeah. in Economy Plus, and I had the the row that's nearest the curtain. So you see, it can't recline as far back as it's supposed to. Yeah. But that's that's that is what it is. I did well when we got there. I did as we weren't supposed to. Said stay awake as long as you possibly can. I just told the teammates I'm going to sleep. You wake me up when we have to leave the apartment. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I got an extra two three hours sleep. I was all right that once once we got back. I said I'm going to bed because I need some sleep. You wake me up. And I did. We did the tour of the village, and I slept like 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 well, not normal, but I slept okay that night, as if it was we were back in the UK. And that's probably I needed to sync the body clock up to that time zone. So it took a few more days, but within a few days is like normal. Yeah. I think once you've got stuff to do, it makes it much easier because you just make sure that you get through the day as much as you can until you have to go to sleep in the night time. Mm -hmm. 
So my final question for you, Rachel, before we wrap up the episode today, if you had to summarize what we have spoken about today into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? I like the word that you used. I like um, the word adversity. So, um, you know, discussing the adversity that I've had to face through um, my growth as a Parabamson player and the recent hurdles that I've had to overcome. I think that's some wise words. So once again, Rachel, thanks for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure being all mine. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast.